I majored in journalism. As an undergraduate at the University of Texas, I began the day watching the TV network news at 7 a.m. I watched the news so faithfully that I felt like Bryant Gumbel and Jane Pauley were close personal friends of mine. Before showing up to class, we were required to know what was happening in the news, and so I became, in my early 20s, a news junkie. Over the years, I shifted away from television news and became a voracious reader of newspapers, both the local paper as well as national and international newspapers. And in recent years, I, like many of you, have become addicted to following the news on my phone or my computer. An American theologian once said that in order to write a good sermon, you needed to have the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other. And so even as I moved into the study of theology and scripture, I remained committed to keeping up with the news. And even when the news was grim, like some horrible earthquake somewhere, I would let the headlines be my guide for early morning prayer. Reading the news, I was convinced, was a daily necessity until recently. Some mornings, I cannot watch. Some days, I pick up the newspaper, I see the headlines, and then I set it back down. Some days, the news seems too depressing, too overwhelming, too unbelievable. When I read this week's scripture from the book of Isaiah, which is one of the prescribed readings for us for the season of Advent, I felt compelled to read the news again. Isaiah demands that we look at the real world issues of our current day. Isaiah puts it so clearly and simply, God loves justice. And so if we love that God, we do not have the option of burying our head in the sand and ignoring the pain of the world. Now, Isaiah was written approximately 500 years before the birth of Jesus. The people of God at that time had endured generations of hardship. Their temple in Jerusalem had fallen. The tenured professors, the bank presidents, and the corporate lawyers had all been deported. The families who were leaders in the community had lost their fortunes. And finally, King Cyrus of Persia allows them to return home from Babylon to rebuild their homeland, to rebuild their city, and most importantly, the temple in Jerusalem. They were invited to plant vineyards again and to rebuild the fabric of their society by jump-starting the Rotary Club and the Chamber of Commerce and the Jerusalem Bar Association. But chaos still reigned. People had lost faith in one another and in God. One scholar describes it like this. Isaiah was sent to prophesy to a nation divided where leaders played to privilege, justice was for sale, and iniquity persisted. The nation had grown rich in things, but poor in soul. Sound familiar? The nation had grown rich in things, but poor in soul. The prophet proclaims that God's peace is not just some spiritual feeling, but a concrete reality. 
the prophet speaks for God saying, I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. And concludes, God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up among all the nations as the people return home to their city in crumbling, in ruins, God promises to repair the city. I wonder, I wonder what kind of justice that prophet would picture for Syria in 2017. 38-year-old Mansour Amari was a journalist and activist working in the Syrian Center for Media and Freedom when he was arrested by the Syrian military police in 2012. In a recent story on NPR, 38-year-old Mansour described the prison conditions that he endured three stories underground. There wasn't enough space, he said, for everyone to lie down at the same time, and so they took turns sleeping. For breakfast, they received three olives and a little bit of bread. Mansoor lost 70 pounds, and for nine months, he didn't see the sun. When he finally learned that he would be released, most likely due to the pressure from human rights groups, the other political prisoners came to him and said, don't forget us. And so he vowed to remember. He and the other prisoners worked to record all of their names. They didn't have pen or paper, but they wanted to make sure that those on the outside knew the names of those unjustly imprisoned. And so they tore fabric from their own clothing and they used blood and rust to write their names. Upon his release, he contacted their families and let them know where they were. The cloth with the 82 names is displayed today at the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. What does God's love of justice mean for these prisoners, for this nation, for the international community? Mansour joins with the prophet Isaiah when he says, if the world knew exactly what they are suffering, the world would not stand and look. The world would help. If the prophet Isaiah were to write about God's love of justice in our day, what do you imagine the prophet would say about the news of sexual assault and harassment in American life? Political leaders, corporate executives, Hollywood stars, world-famous journalists have bombarded us daily with the most bewildering examples of disgraceful conduct, taking advantage of power and treating people as things. For many women, this has not come as news, but as confirmation of our own experience, previously thought to be an isolated secret. Let me be clear. The church has not been immune to the same kind of behavior. I have served, I know that Joe and other colleagues have served on ethics committees in our denomination where clergy lost their ordination and standing because of improper conduct. I have had people I called friends who lost their right to serve the church because of improper boundary violations. The church policy 
both here in this congregation and throughout our denomination, specifically prohibits the kind of misconduct that we have been reading about in the news. We have zero tolerance for those who abuse minors. Perhaps those who are now speaking up are the prophets demanding that at church and work and school and Congress, men and women can work together safely, working for the common good without any personal fear. Isaiah says, God anointed me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to the captives. And 500 years later, when Jesus preaches his very first sermon, he opens that same scroll of Isaiah and reads, God has anointed me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to the captives. And then Jesus says the most audacious thing. He says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, Jesus makes this passage his personal mission statement. Jesus came to do the work of justice, the very work that Isaiah describes. Jesus came to set those free who were victims of oppression, poverty, abuse of power, national destruction. Jesus came as a gift to all of us who need justice. Jesus came into the world to embody the justice that God had demanded for centuries, to comfort all who mourn, to bring them a gift of garland instead of ashes. Now that word garland really tripped me up because I think of garland as this pretty stuff that we put in the windows and drape on the balcony. Or maybe you have some garland on your mantle at home or on the staircase. But in the ancient days, the garland, well, for one, it was real. <laughs> and secondly, it was something that was worn as a sign of victory and new life. If you won a great race, you would be crowned with a garland. If you were the king, you would wear a garland. If you were the bridegroom, you would wear a garland. To receive a garland was to receive the gift of joy and new life. It symbolized unity and togetherness and peace. And to receive ashes, well, ashes only remind us of death. I will never forget our mission trip to Ground Zero. Some of you were there just a couple of months after 9-11 when we worked at St. Paul's Chapel there in the shadows of the Twin Towers. And I remember as we would come and go from St. Paul's Chapel that everything, the trees, the shrubs, the fence, the ground, the workers, everything was covered in ash. The people of Israel came home to a city covered in ashes. Their economy was fragile. The rich were taking advantage of the working poor. Everything they loved and believed in was gone, and they had to rebuild. And God gave them a garland instead of ashes, a sign of new life. And in the midst of the worry of the news of their day, God promises that joy is on its way back. 
two-year-old Simone was limping and she had a high fever when she was admitted to the hospital through the emergency room. Simone had no health insurance. Her mom was pregnant and the family was struggling to pay the $800 a month health care premium to cover mother and expected baby. When the doctors told them that little Simone had a serious bone infection needing immediate surgery and that if they didn't do the surgery quick, she could lose the leg, they didn't know what to do. They had no health insurance. They had no ability to pay out of pocket. They would need to sell their home and declare bankruptcy in order to pay for the surgery. And then a nurse came in and she said, you know, I think Simone might qualify for CHIP, the Children's Health Insurance Program. And CHIP was a garland instead of ashes for that family. The family was able to stay financially afloat and Simone received the life-saving surgery. Simone's story was recently shared in a public letter written by four governors, two Republicans and two Democrats, who were asking for Congress to vote affirmatively to fund this 20-year bipartisan program called CHIP that serves nine million of the most vulnerable children in our world. The prophet Isaiah promises that God sends a servant adorned with a garland to bring salvation and new life. And who do you think Isaiah is describing when Isaiah writes of this servant? Some scholars say that there was this unnamed leader among the people who helped them in the years following 586 BC to rebuild Jerusalem. Some people say, no, it wasn't someone right then, it was Jesus coming 500 years later, the Savior. And other people say it wasn't one person, but the whole community called by God to serve one another by creating the kind of society that reflects God's deep desire for new life born of justice. The president of Princeton Seminary, Dr. Craig Barnes, writes, you don't become holy. You don't become holy by trying to follow Jesus' teaching. That's just one more self-improvement program that doesn't work any better than all the others. You are made holy by the gracious work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus comes, you see, as a compelling gift, the one who will not let us off the hook. We must dare to read the daily news and the good news of Jesus Christ, and then boldly act in God's name. Now you and I, in fact, you and your spouse and you and your best friend will not always see the issues of justice from the same perspective. And even if we agree on the issue, we will not always agree on the solutions, but we have no choice but to seek God's justice and God's peace and God's new life for the whole world if we follow the one born in the manger. I do not pretend that this is easy. It isn't even easy for me to stand here and say this, but how else can we follow the one born in the manger? How could our hearts not rejoice in his arrival? 
and how could we resist joining in his holy work? My friend Dean is a pastor in Kentucky. He actually began his career as a lawyer and then had a, a shift and became a local church pastor. He's one of the kindest, brightest, most spiritually radiant souls I have ever met. Dean did something very unusual a few years ago. He started a new church inside of one of Kentucky's prisons. While there at New Life Christian Church, he met a woman named Stormy. She joined New Life Christian Church, meeting inside of the prison. She had a 10-year-old son, and she had been addicted to crack cocaine for 20 years. She was just about to be released from prison when she was diagnosed with breast cancer. She was so anxious, not knowing how to build a new life. Dean realized that she was going to need a bridge, and so he invited a pastor from Eminence, Kentucky, which was in the county where Stormy was from, to come inside to the New Life Christian Church and get acquainted with Stormy. Stormy sat down and told the pastor the honest truth about her past addiction how she had even crawled through dumpsters seeking drugs and finally woke up and said, what am I doing here? After her release from prison, Stormy showed up in Eminence, Kentucky at the Point Pleasant Christian Church. The members of the church drove Stormy to chemotherapy. They picked up Stormy's 10-year-old son and brought him to Vacation Bible School. The pastor stood by Stormy's side in the operating room waiting room as she prepared for a double mastectomy. Stormy and her 10-year-old son felt so embraced by the Pleasant Point Christian Church that they decided to join the church and to be baptized. The pastor said that Stormy's little 10-year-old boy was the only person she had ever baptized who stood in the baptistry jumping up and down and saying, I'm baptized, I'm baptized. And then some time lapsed. One day, Stormy showed up at weeknight Bible study. She stood in the doorway of the classroom as the pastor taught. Finally, the pastor stopped. She looked at Stormy, and Stormy shouted, I am cancer free, and the church rejoiced. Stormy's life became a garland, not ashes and the church tasted the freedom and the new life. The church had never known a more compelling gift.